Chlamydia and gonorrhea are the most commonly reported sexually transmitted bacterial infections or STIs in Canada, but many cases might go unnoticed because of little or no symptoms. And if left untreated, these STIs can lead to complications and long-term consequences. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, consulting editor for CMAJ. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ainsley Moore, one of the co-authors of an evidence-based guideline on screening for chlamydia and gonorrhea in primary care. Ainsley is vice chair of the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Health Care, the group behind the creation of this guideline. I've reached her in Hamilton to discuss. Welcome, Ainsley. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Diane. Thanks to you. I'm excited to share this new guideline from the Canadian Task Force. Can you start by telling our listeners a bit about who you are and your involvement with this guideline? Sure. I'm a family physician. I'm on faculty uh, with family medicine at McMaster. I'm super passionate about reproductive health and rights and, of course, primary preventive care, which is where this guideline naturally fits in. So I've been chairing the working group um, that developed this particular guideline for the task force. Well, I mentioned in the intro that chlamydia and gonorrhea are the most commonly reported STIs in Canada. How common are they? So there's two ways to answer that question. Um, One way is the reported rates for chlamydia and gonorrhea. And this comes from 2018 Health Canada. Among those 15 to 29 years of age, this, this is the group that represents the highest prevalence. The um, reported rates of chlamydia are around one to 2%. And the reported rates for gonorrhea are around 0.2 to 0.3%. If you look at the next um, age group up, the older age group, people over 30, those rates drop to half or less than half. And so there's a, there's a drop off and and the 15 to 29 year olds do represent the highest um, prevalence group. And we know that annual reported rates have been increasing and continue to increase since about 2000. What's loaded about this question is there's reported rates and then there's um, true rates. So true rates of chlamydia among this age group, the 15 to 29 year olds may be quite high, as high as five to 7%. And that's because the majority, most uh, chlamydia infections are not symptomatic, so may not be aware. And even if they are symptomatic, some would choose not to seek care. So the reported rates are estimated to be, as I mentioned, up as high as five to 7%. And if you look at the lower range of that number, that represents about one in 20, 15 to 29 year olds would be experiencing an infection. It could be asymptomatic, unreported, or, or indeed reported, that rate would uh, include everything. There are lots of people in Canada, young people in particular, who are infected with chlamydia and gonorrhea, but might not know it. What are the most common complications or longer term consequences if chlamydia or gonorrhea remain untreated? So the the complications would differ by sex. And what just to clarify what I mean by sex, um, we're using the terms male and female that refer to biological attributes, uh, reproductive or sexual anatomy at birth, as assigned at birth. And so if we're looking at the complications in females, the most common being pelvic inflammatory disease. So I'm not talking about cervicitis, not thinking so much of a, as a complication, but more of a symptom, but complications, um, pelvic inflammatory disease in untreated infections is as high as 10 to 16% um, in females. And that's followed by other complications. So persistent pelvic pain that's lasts beyond six months, that's maybe three to 8%. And then of course, infertility is another complication, which can be up to 5% if untreated in, in females. And then the ectopic pregnancy rate is the other uh, important complication 
which can be up to 2% in females. If we look at males, that's, that's different. So untreated um, chlamydia infection in males, most commonly is epididymitis, and that's about 7% of untreated cases. And then that would be followed by, you know, the other complication of urethritis or chitis, which happens in about plus or minus or chitis. That's only about 3%. And then very, very, very rarely, in fact, so rare, it's hard to put a number on um, would be infertility in males. So you can see that the majority or the burden of complications associated with infection are carried by mostly by females. Now, you've said that, you know, there obviously are patients now who, who have symptoms versus those who are completely asymptomatic. What percentage do you think have symptoms versus completely asymptomatic? So if we're looking at chlamydia, the majority of those are asymptomatic, so over 50%. Gonorrhea is a little bit different. Gonorrhea um, is more likely to be a more severe infection, more likely to be symptomatic. Less than 50% are asymptomatic for gonorrhea. But um, there there are many that are still asymptomatic who who are infected with gonorrhea. And the, the likelihood of those complications goes up when we're talking about gonorrhea. So Certainly pelvic inflammatory disease is increased with a gonorrhea infection versus a a chlamydia infection. This is really important to remember because we're going to go on in a bit to talk about the actual, the task force recommendation and why it's important to to do screening. But before we do that, let's talk about, so if, if somebody is diagnosed with chlamydia or gonorrhea, what are the latest recommendations on treatment? So, yeah, so coming from um, Public Health Agency of Canada, the recommendation for a positive test result for chlamydia is to treat with a gram of azithromycin single dose one time orally. Um, But for gonorrhea, it's different. That's the important part. Gonorrhea is treated with ceftriaxone, um, which would be 250 milligrams, but it's delivered intramuscularly in a single dose. And with with gonorrhea, you would treat with ceftriaxone, but you'd also treat with um, azithromycin as well. So you treat both for chlamydia and gonorrhea when you have a positive um, gonorrhea uh, test result. And why is that? It's related to the concurrence uh, rate of chlamydia infection with gonorrhea. It can be up as high as 40%. And so the, the recommendation is just to treat both. When you've got a positive gonorrhea test result, uh, treat both gonorrhea and chlamydia, the azithromycin that's important to keep in mind as we move on now to talk about the actual uh, recommendations. So for this guideline, uh, the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Health Care looked at, you looked at available evidence and then went on to make a recommendation regarding preemptive screening of patients. Well, maybe we can start by telling us what the recommendation is and then we'll, then we'll break it down a bit. So we're recommending opportunistic screening, opportunistic meaning at any appropriate primary care visit, of all those who are sexually active and under 30 years of age, and specifically those who are not known by the primary care practitioner to belong to a high-risk group. We're suggesting screening for chlamydia and gonorrhea, and that would be using either a clinician or a self-collected sample. And it's a conditional recommendation. It's based on low, the low certainty of the evidence. So yes, there is a lot jammed in that recommendation. You mentioned opportunistic screening. You said that at any appointment. What is the difference between a screening program, like a population screening program, like, for example, you know, for breast cancer, which I think is more population-based versus opportunistic screening? So, yeah, so breast cancer screening programs would be managed at provincial jurisdictional levels. They would involve registries, a database of who's eligible for screening, 
who's had a screen done, reminders if someone hasn't had a screen done, they would be organized at, you know, at, as you're saying, at a population level. Opportunistic screening would occur at the uh, primary care practitioner level. And what we're suggesting by opportunistic visits would be appropriate visits that would make sense. So, you know, if you're thinking of your busy practice, you you wouldn't be offering um, STI testing if, at some visits. So if it was maybe grief counseling or loss or something like that, just, of course it wouldn't be the appropriate time. But we're suggesting that any other visits would likely be appropriate. And so not just the sexual health visit, not just the contraception discussion or the pap smear visit, but other visits as well. So if somebody comes in with, um, you know, thinking that they have strep throat or something, you could say, I noted that we haven't screened you for chlamydia or gonorrhea in the last, you know, year. This might be a good time. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. The other thing that you said was, so just to continue breaking it down, you said sexually active. Uh, What does sexual activity mean in this context? Yeah, so we're defining this uh, simply and also how it it was defined in, in the evidence base. So it's just defined as generally ever having had oral, vaginal, or anal intercourse. So it's it's a fairly simple um, definition of sexual activity. And, and just for ease of implementation, and also because that's how it was defined in the underlying studies, the evidence that supported this guideline. You mentioned under 30 years of age. Now, I know earlier on in our in our chat, you mentioned that obviously the rates of chlamydia and gonorrhea are higher in this group. Is that the major reason why you went with that? I mean, we do know that uh, there's increasing evidence, for example, that older people are getting um, more sexually transmitted infections, let's say in the past. Um, Can you give us a rationale though for picking under 30? Mm -hmm. So often the recommendation goes from 20 to 25, Um, but we extended it just to all those sexually active under 30. And that's because the prevalence between 25 to 30 is now equal to the um, 20 to 25 year olds in Canada. So it's reflecting trends in the epidemiology within Canada to recommend, um, you know, under 30. The other um, reason is, again, the underlying evidence base from the studies that supported the, the recommendation were based on those that were under 30. And for similar reasons, because they, they represent the highest uh, prevalence rates now. Those older, older adults um, that we've seen trends or or slight peaks are still very low when you consider the the entire population of elderly um, or older adults that are experiencing chlamydia or gonorrhea infections. So still, this is the high prevalence age group that we're, we're targeting here. And I think one of the important parts of this guideline, it says those who are not known to belong to a high risk group. So can you tell us who is in the high risk group? So high-risk behaviors, uh, we've defined again simply, and it's based on behavior. So it's based on um, whether there are multiple sexual partners in one's life, um, whether unprotected sex is uh, is a risk, and whether there's been a previous history of of a sexually transmitted infection. Um, Those would indicate kind of belonging to a higher risk group. And in that case, if a clinician is aware of this, they would follow different recommendations. So different guidelines um, at the national, provincial, or even your local public health uh, unit for appropriate screening intervals, appropriate sample collection strategies, analysis strategies, et cetera, and even treatment strategies 
you know, could be different depending on, on the region and the province, et cetera. So this would apply to those not known to belong to a high-risk group. If they are known to belong to high-risk group, there would be other recommendations to follow. And of course, I think this brings up the important point that we're talking about screening. And I probably it's worthwhile just reminding our listeners, screening versus somebody coming in with symptoms. Yes, yeah, screening versus testing. There would be a, an indication for doing a test. A screen would be an asymptomatic adult at general risk, um, not presenting with symptoms, not notified by public health, uh, say, uh, who, who's been uh, partner notified that they should get tested. That would be not a screen, but a test for any other reasons why, why testing might be done, which would be different, again, as you're saying, from truly a screening recommendation. You can imagine screening in targeted populations. So you can imagine screening in other groups, but that would be different from actual testing. Testing would be driven by some indicator that a test is required. Now, there are a couple of other things in the recommendation that I just wondered if you could just explain a little bit more. The, the guideline uh, recommends annual screening. Why was that uh, frequency selected? So we tried to look at different screening strategies, um, which included how frequent screening should be, what's the optimal screening test, clinician collected, individual collected, and the best answer we could come up with was up to annually. So the recommendation is to screen annually, but it's there's a caveat around that, or there's like a, a clarification, screening annually as feasible recognizing that that interactions with this age group may be less frequent than annual. So it's annual screening as feasible with reminders that beyond the usual sexual health visits. So this is not, again, like we talked about a centralized population screening program where we send out reminders to people. This is, you know, people come in and if you have the opportunity to do it, it makes sense, as you said, given the type of appointment. Yeah. Okay, the other thing that's in here is a self or clinician collected sample. Physicians are pretty comfortable with clinician collected samples. Tell us about self collected samples. So the recommendation is to screen using self or clinician collected. Clinician collected would be typically, you know, um, a cervical swab collection. Self-collected would be done by the individual themselves. It could be a urine sample or it could be a vaginal self-collected sample. Um, Recognizing that acceptance preference for self-collection is going to be a lot higher than clinician collected, except maybe if it's already at a pap smear visit, and then it would be reasonable to do uh, a clinician collected uh, sample. But um, self-collected samples, the uptake is you know, likely to be higher when screening is offered, given the acceptability of of those methods of providing samples. And that can be done at the office. Which is perfect if people can do it then. Now, before we sort of go on to talk a little bit about evidence, Task Force does recommend equal screening of males and females. And you've talked a lot about rationale behind various decisions. What's the rationale behind that decision? Yeah, so the recommendation to also screen males, that's based on properties of of sexual networks and transmission within sexual networks and males um, being the primary source of infection for females, the recommendation to also screen males is intended to reduce the burden of consequences 
of infection among females, as we previously heard, carry the majority of the consequences of infection. So this part of the recommendation may improve health equity for females. And that's the basis for, for that part of the recommendation. Is there anything more about the recommendation itself that um, you wanted to explain the thinking behind? So we've recommended also screening for gonorrhea concurrently with chlamydia, and that's related to the co-occurrence of both infections. As we mentioned earlier, 40% of gonorrhea infections may have um, concurrently chlamydia infection as well. And also because many gonorrhea cases are asymptomatic. So the recommendation to concurrently screen for both organisms is also based on how Canadian clinical and laboratory practices are set up. Um, so testing is often is combined in a single sample, a single urine sample, a single swab um, for both organisms. And even the provincial schedules for NAAT testing are under a single price for both chlamydia and gonorrhea together. So that's the basis of um, that part of the recommendation for including gonorrhea. When listeners, if they go and read the guideline itself, they will see that the evidence for gonorrhea screening is not as strong as what is available for uh, chlamydia. But you've explained now why the task force decided to recommend, because it just sort of makes sense for how the, the labs work. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about the evidence supporting this guideline? As you said, it's some areas are you've got reasonable evidence, but overall, I think the, the task force described it as very low certainty evidence. So the, the, the major source of uncertainty was a lack of studies that are similar to how opportunistic screening would be rolled out in Canada among uh, Canadian primary care clinicians. Um, we saw studies that looked at mailed out invitations, um, outreach invitations. We saw studies that um, combined encouragement of testing and uh, public messaging and things like that. Um, there was one study from Australia that, a trial from Australia that provided clinic level packages to encourage clinicians to offer screening. So it wasn't directly encouraging clinicians, but providing packages to clinics. So that was perhaps the closest model, but there was some limitations to, to how it would similarly be rolled out in primary care in Canada. When we looked at the offer to screen, it was actually quite low, um, you know, in the low, low 20s, low 20%. And then we know based on that same study that when screening is offered, the uptake is around 80%. So we believe that the effectiveness rates were probably uh, dampened or lowered by those factors. So there was indirectness and uncertainty related to that. In the guideline, uh, you include a section about possible harms of screening. Now, you mentioned sort of a situation where a doctor might not want to invite a patient for screening, for example, as you said, at grief counseling or something like that. Are there any other situations where a doctor might not want to screen a patient or vice versa, where a patient would choose not to be screened? Yeah, there's two main harms associated with screening that could be you know, considered primarily from the patient perspective, but the main harms are associated with false positive results and, of course, psychosocial consequences of undergoing a screening for, for an STI, for infection. Some of the psychosocial consequences, you know, some people could feel substantial um, shame, embarrassment, stigma, maybe even guilt associated with screening, and that could represent a real and important barrier, and they may choose not to screen. 
So the recommendation to offer screening to all sexually active individuals has been identified as one way to reduce stigma and barriers associated with screening. So we're anticipating that routinely extending uh, an offer to all those who are sexually active under 30 may serve to reduce equity for those experiencing barriers. Um, we're also, I mean, clinicians do this, but we're offering, uh, reminding that offering screening does require sensitivity to those issues of stigmatization, you know, specifically fear, social disapproval, um, particularly when we're talking about um, gender culture uh, behavior and other vulnerabilities. The importance of obtaining informed consent. I know the guideline talks about that, especially considering that positive test results are automatically reported to local public health units, which may involve contacting sexual partners. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. And that does connect to harms, fears of um, undergoing screening, etc. The key element to informed consent for any STI testing um, that's reportable is that results automatically get reported to public health. There's, there's no forwarding of results from the clinician office. They're just automatically registered, reported to public health. And then that generates a cascade of events. And some of those events could include... Um, contacting sexual partners of their risk of infection and need to be treated. And different jurisdictions would do it differently. But, you know, in many cases, it could involve um, a public health nurse helping someone to communicate, to identify and communicate um, their positive test results um, to their partners. So, so people need to be aware of, of this, you know, positive test results do carry a lot of um, implications for relationships, relationship disruption, um, even potentially interpartner violence and things like that. So, you know, this is a really important element to, um, to screening and to offering screening to make sure that that piece of the informed consent is clearly understood. And by informed consent, you're not talking about they written like a signature on a, on a form or something. You're talking about, you know, having the discussion and documenting that in the chart. Yeah. So, yeah, it would be a verbal... Uh, informed consent after um, documentation of discussion of what was it, what was shared, and this this being the most important part of what's shared. And I think sort of just going back to your point about routine offering of this, the fact that the task force has said sort of all sexually active individuals younger than that age group, and the, and if this becomes routine and people get used to this happens when I go in, you know, if I if I go for a visit uh, annually that that will help to hopefully over time reduce some of the stigma and fear associated with this kind of, with this kind of testing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. We've really delved in into pretty good detail on this recommendation. Thank you so much, Ainsley, for joining me today. This has been a, a really, really helpful conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for this opportunity, Diane. I've been speaking with Dr. Ainsley Moore, family physician and vice chair of the Canadian Task Force on Preventive Health Care. To read the guideline the Canadian Task Force authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, consulting editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.